0: Uh, Our Dharma talk this evening, the 11th of October 2022, will be the first of three Dharma talks on Zen and nature. Uh, When I was thinking about the topic, I thought of it at first the title might be Zen and Landscape, but that's too tame. Then I thought of Zen and Wilderness, that's a little bit too wild. So, sort of Zen and nature is an umbrella title. Right from the start, it's good to remind ourselves that our true nature, our unborn and undying Buddha nature, is intrinsically interwoven with the natural world. The whole of nature, animals, plants, mountains, and rivers, is also our true nature. Dogen reminds us of this when he states, you think that your mind is thoughts and concepts, but it is really trees and grasses and pebbles and tiles. So this talk is going to really, has two parts. First, we're going to focus on the planet Earth, And then we'll look at a tree. And to begin with, to give us a a cosmic perspective, I'll read the opening passages from A Very Short History of Life on Earth by Henry G. And he begins. Once upon a time, a giant star was dying, It had been burning for millions of years. Now, the fusion furnace at its core had no more fuel to burn. The star created the energy it needed to shine by fusing hydrogen atoms to make helium. The energy produced by the fusion did more than make the star shine. It was vital to counteract the inward pull of the star's own gravity. When the supply of available hydrogen began to run low, the star began to fuse helium into atoms of heavier elements, such as carbon and oxygen. By then, though, the star was running out of things to burn. The day came when the fuel ran out completely. Gravity won the battle. The star imploded. After the millions of years of burning, the collapse took a split second. It prompted a rebound so explosive that it lit up the universe, a supernova. Any life that might have existed in the star's own planetary system would have been obliterated. But in the cataclysm of its death were born the seeds of something new. Even heavier elements forged in the final moments of the star's life, silicon, nickel, sulfur, and iron, were spread far and wide by the explosion. Billions of years later, the gravitational shock wave of the supernova explosion passed through a cloud of gas, dust, and ice. The stretch and squeeze of the gravitational wave made the cloud fall in on itself. As it contracted, it started to rotate. The pull of gravity squeezed the gas at the cloud's centre so much that atoms began to fuse together. Hydrogen atoms were pressed together, forming helium, creating light and heat. The circle of stellar life was complete, From the death of an ancient star emerged another, fresh and new, our sun. But wait, he continues. The cloud of gas, dust and ice was enriched with the elements created in the supernova. Swirling around the new sun, it also coagulated into a system planets. One of them was our Earth. The infant Earth was very different from the one we know today. The atmosphere would have been to us an unbreathable fog of methane, carbon dioxide, water vapour, and hydrogen. The surface was an ocean of molten lava, perpetually stirred up by the impact of asteroids, comets, and even other planets." One of these was Thea, a planet about the same size as today's Mars. Thea struck the Earth a glancing blow and disintegrated. The collision blasted much of Earth's surface into space. For a few million years, our planets had rings like Saturn. Eventually, the rings coalesced to create another new world, the Moon. All this happened approximately 4.6 billion years ago. So the Earth, the Moon, was born from the Earth. And at that time, of course, it was much closer to the Earth. There's a wonderful story by Italo Calvino in his book, Le Cosmicomiche, The Cosmic Comics, the is about when the moon was very close to the earth, that people actually put ladders up to climb onto the moon's surface. And they climbed up the ladders, and they gathered a special kind of milk that was beneath the scales of the moon. It was encrusted in scales. Anyway, they are, it's a fabulous story, but it's sort of based, in a way, on truth, that the earth was... The moon was born from the earth and was very close to the earth and then gradually the two pulled apart. And Henry Guy finishes up. Millions more years passed. The day came when the earth had cooled enough for the water vapour in the atmosphere to condense and fall as rain. It rained for millions of years, long enough to create the first oceans. And oceans were all there were. There was no land. The earth, once a ball of fire, had become a world of water. And from that water, eventually, the first life emerged. This cosmic vision of destruction and creation is mirrored in Buddhist cosmology, Where the universe goes through an endless cycle of emptiness, creation, abiding, and destruction. Those are the four phases. One Western cosmologist describes the birth of our universe from the Big Bang as an event arising out of emptiness. That's the closest they can define to the the birth of the universe is an event arising out of emptiness. In English, Earth is both the planet where we live, the third planet from the sun, and the ground on which we stand. It is the vastness of our terrestrial globe as well as the soil, the rich loam, which nourishes life. This double meaning is also found in French with terre, and Italian with terra, terra firma, the solid ground beneath our feet. And the earth supports us all, sitting on our mats, doing in We're directly connected with the earth. As a Zen capping phrase states, Beneath the feet of every person is the space for one sitting mat. There is a passage in the Sarangama Sutra, an important Mahayana Sutra, goes like this. The Bodhisattva, maintaining the ground, was enlightened by the earth element. In the Sarankama Sutra a whole array of Bodhisattvas uh, tell the Buddha how they came to enlightenment. One of them is Quan Yin. She tells the story of how she was enlightened by sound, the sound of waves. But this Bodhisattva says that he came to awakening when The Passion Buddha told him, you should level your mind ground, then everything in the world would be leveled. Immediately, my mind opened, and I saw that the particles of earth composing my body were no different from all the particles of earth that made up this world. That's what he realized in his enlightenment, The particles of earth composing my own body were no different from all the particles of the earth that made up this world. We're also mineral entities. We're beings made of carbon. And the sculptor and environmentalist Andy Goldsworthy Reminds us, the reason why the stone is red is its iron content, which is also why our blood is red. In 1992, Sensei and I took a half-day mule trip down into the Grand Canyon when we were in the States. Uh, when a cowboy saw me at the chicken, chicken desk for, for the excursion, he said, boy, have I got a, have I got a big one for you. <laughs> and, and he did. It turned out that my mule, governor, was very large and extremely placid. Uh, we brought up the rear of the excursion and followed but right behind Sensei's mule Rose, to whom Governor was particularly attached. The journey was a spectacular descent back in time through the various layers and ages of the earth. The writer, Richard Forty, took a similar ride. His was a longer one. He took the whole day trip down into the Grand Canyon and gives a really vivid description in his book, Earth, and intimate history. So I'm just going to read what he has to say. The mule has its eyes set in such a position that it can see all four legs at the same time. This is just as well if the track it is traversing is only a metre or so wide and there is a sheer drop of hundred and fifty metres to one side. When it approaches a hairpin bend on the outside of a precipitous trail, the mule prefers to poke its head out into the nothingness before jerking sharply round to follow the animal in front. I think it does this on purpose. If you don't like it, close your eyes, says Ken, the guide. After all, that's what The mule does. I find myself clinging to the pommel of the saddle with terrible determination. The descent into the Grand Canyon in Arizona is one of the great geological journeys. It is more than a mile down, vertically speaking, from the rim of the canyon to the Colorado River, a journey through half the Earth's history, rock formation by rock formation, as the mule treads delicately but relentlessly onward, you are carried downward upon its back through the geological column, you become a time traveler, worn step by lurching step, back first through tens, then through millions then through hundreds of millions of years, all among the pine trees on the south rim. A bedded rock, the colour of rich cream, crops out in bulky benches. This is limestone, the kaibab formation. You do not have to search for a long time before you notice fossils withering on the upper surfaces of the slabs. The skeletons of corals and shells of several kinds. Evidently, this sedimentary rock was originally deposited under the sea such animals thrived you may see the stem of a sea lily or crinoid which would once have waved back and forth in the current I remember that um, on the the rim of the Grand Canyon we did a rim walk as well we would find seashells that had been lifted up from the ocean bed he continues now that you can recognize the kaibab (coughs) you know that it forms the uppermost layer for as far as you can see. Below it, other rock formations take their turn, so you look back further into the remote past as you look downwards. The Kaibab is only the beginning. The journey down to the Colorado River is a chance to see the ebb and flow of vanished seas over millions of years, to feel the slow pulse of the earth. When we remember that a thousand years of erosion has been calculated to wear back the walls by no more than a meter, we begin to get a feeling for the vastness of geological time, for the ages required to lay down and then uplift the cover rocks, for the still more ancient cycles where the dead and gone that were dead and gone, even before the first trilobite scurried on its way to extinction over the first Cambrian sandstone, and for the slow procession of plates that underplinned it all. There he's, of course, he's talking about tectonic plates, which are, which are always moving around the surface of the earth, causing volcanic eruptions. And it's encouraging encouraging us for all to know that while the Earth has undergone so far five mass extinction events, after each one, life rebounded with more vigour and diversity. The last one, 68 million years ago, the Cretaceous-Paleogene extinction event marked the end of the dinosaurs, when an asteroid crashed into the earth. The departure of the dinosaurs allowed mammals to become the dominant life form uh, on land. At first, very small animals, mammals, like sort of primitive mice and voles. And then, over millions of years, apes appeared... And from apes there evolved our human ancestors. The more you read about the Earth and I really love reading at the moment um, the histories of the Earth and just yeah accounts, accounts of the creation of the Earth and all the different phases the Earth has gone through you realize that the Earth is so precious, it's the only planet in our solar system that can sustain life. There's no evidence of microorganisms living in the soil of Mars. Mars remains like the moon, a completely barren landscape In a radio interview recorded on his 100th birthday, the great environmentalist James Lovelock completely dismissed the notion that humans could move to Mars. He points out that Antarctica is incomparably more suited to human habitation than Mars with its unbreathable atmosphere so it's, it's really is delusional to think that we could fly off into space and colonise another planet. Earth is our one and only planet. And we need to channel all our efforts into protecting our biosphere. This, of course, is the overarching challenge that faces humanity. I just... Two two hours before this talk, I was scrolling through um, news reports, and I found this. Whoa, whoa synchronicity! This was um, an interview with William Shatner from Star Trek. You know, boldly go where no man has gone before. And William Shatner blasted off into space aboard Jeff Bezos's Origin flight in October 2021, so just a year ago. On reflection, he said, the feelings of euphoria he had expected were overtaken by a sense of profound grief. This is, this is his words. I saw a cold, dark, black emptiness. It was like an empty. It was unlike any blackness you can see or feel on Earth. It was deep, enveloping, all-encompassing. I turned back towards the light of home. I could see the curvature of Earth, the beige of the desert, the white of the clouds and the blue of the sky. It was life, nurturing, sustaining life. Mother Earth, Gaia, and I was leaving her. Everything I had thought was wrong. Everything I had expected to see was wrong. Shatner also revealed he had, an overwhelming, he had been overwhelmed with the thought humans were slowly destroying the earth. I felt one of the strongest feelings of grief I ever encountered. Now, for a Zen student, if, if we could go into space... Uh, would be fine with vast emptiness. It would be totally fine. But, um, and William Shatner is definitely not a Zen student. Anyone knows about William Shatner. However, it is poignant that he felt this connection to the earth so deeply when he was thrust out into space. He realized the preciousness of the earth. Placards say, there is no planet B. In Hakun Zazen Wasan we chant, this earth where we stand is the pure lotus land. The lotus land refers to the western paradise of pure land Buddhism, a realm where conditions are more conductive to attaining enlightenment. But we need go nowhere else to see into our true nature, the place for awakening is beneath our feet, right here. The spirit of right here is embodied in a koan from uh, Case 4 in the Shoyu Roku. The Buddha points to the ground. Um, I took up this koan in the last Dharma talk I gave on grass and weeds, but it's worth revisiting from a different angle. It goes like this. When the Buddha was walking with his disciples, he pointed to the ground and said, here would be a good place to build a temple. The god Indra took a single blade of grass, stuck it in the ground and said, the temple is built. The Buddha smiled. The essence of the koan is The act of Indra sticking the blade of grass in the ground in connecting directly with the earth. Right here, that's the place for a temple. I remember at the uh, Rochester Zen Center, there was a little plaque on the wall of Roshi Kaplow's kitchen. And it said something to the effect that The role of a teacher is to take a bunch of live wires and earth them. That's the the role of a teacher. This means, in the words of a Tibetan teacher, to return the student to the basic sanity of the earth. The basic sanity of the earth. We'll now take up another koan, case 37 in the Mumon Khan, which focuses on a tree. A famous koan. A monk asked Zhao Zhou, What is the meaning of Bodhidharmas coming from the West? Zhao Zhou said, The cypress in the courtyard. Just a little background on um, Zhao Zhou, who's one of the, the most famous of Zen teachers. The incredible thing about him is he is supposed to have lived for 120 years, from 778 in the Common Era to 897. He first met his teacher, Nan Chuan, or Nansan in Japanese, when he was 17. He studied with Nanchuan for 40 years. And when Nanchuan died, Zhao Zhou was 57 years old. He stayed at Nanquan's monastery as his successor for three years, the traditional period of mourning. Then, at the age of 60, he took a water bottle and a walking stick and left for 20 years of wandering. During this period, he polished and deepened his understanding by meeting numerous other great Zen masters of the Tang Dynasty. At the age of 80, Zhao Zhou finally settled down in a small temple in his hometown of Jiaozhou, Jiaozhou, where he from which he took his name. As Zen master Dogen greatly admired Zhao Zhou and he'd refer to him as the old Buddha. It was said that when Zhao Zhou spoke, a golden light played around his lips. In 2001, while on pilgrimage in China, Sensei and I visited a Ba Lin Temple, Zhao Zhou's temple, in modern-day Zhao on arrival, we were greeted by a profusion of green cypress trees in the temple courtyard. In 1988, when Anthony Ferguson, the author of Sin's Chinese Heritage, first visited the temple after the ravages of the Cultural Revolution, it had been reduced to a few ancient cypress trees and Zhaozhou's stone stupa. Which we circumambulated. In the decades that followed, however, the temple was completely rebuilt and is now a flourishing Zen monastery with hundreds of monks. So, the monk in the koan asks a familiar question what is the meaning of bodhidharmas coming from the West? Just last week, we had our Bodhidharma Day celebrations. So this question translates as, what is the essential teachings of Zen? Instead of giving a shout, as Lin Qi might have done, or striking him with a stick, or remaining silent, Zhao Zhou compassionately replies, the cypress in the courtyard Zaojo takes the monk out of his conceptual realm and presents him with the living example of a cypress tree. Takes him out of his conceptual realm. So often we're we're caught up in thoughts and our thoughts and our, our concepts and our judgments that they blur our vision and we can't see what's right in front of us. There's just too much going on in our heads. So it's, it's, the, um, it's the work of a, of a Zen teacher to shake, shake the student out of all their concepts and what they think about the world and just get them to see directly, get them to be in the present moment. David Hinton in No Gateway, his translation of the Mumon Khan, Highlights the direct and intimate nature of Zhao Zhou's response. In his translation, Zhao Zhou replies, That cypress in our courtyard. That cypress in our courtyard. Very intimate. We take shelter under trees, we read under trees, we fall asleep under trees, we become enlightened under trees. In a Pali Sutta, it is said that the Buddha, after his great enlightenment, maintained samadhi for seven days under the bow tree. In the second week, he moved to a banyan, in the third week, to an Indian oak. In the fourth week, to Rajatana tree. And in the fifth week, back to a banyan. Under each, he enjoyed a state free of all suffering. Uh, now, Zhao The Cypress in the Courtyard is not a difficult koan. It presents us with a blueprint of how we can be alive, completely alive, in the world. And I read recently that we share about 50% of our DNA with trees. It's sort of mind-boggling. We share 50% of our DNA with trees. Our blood is analogous to their sap, our skin to their bark. Both humans and trees have their own vascular systems, and our limbs, like theirs, reach up to the sunlight and the sky. Uh, So I'd like to read now two passages that feature transcendent encounters with trees. The first is from Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek, which is a real modern classic of nature writing. Really wonderful book. Uh, She writes, One day I was walking along Tinker Creek thinking of nothing at all and I saw the tree with the lights in it I saw the backyard cedar where the morning doves roost charged and transfigured each cell buzzing with flame I stood on the grass with the lights in it Grass that was holy fire, utterly focused and utterly dreamed. It was less like seeing than like being for the first time seen, not breathless by a powerful glance. The flood of fire abated, but I'm still spending that power. Gradually, the light's Went out in the cedar. The colours died. The cells unflamed and disappeared. I was still ringing. I had been my whole life a bell and never knew it until at that moment I was lifted and struck. I have since only very rarely seen the tree with the lights. In it. The vision comes and goes, mostly goes, but I live for it. For the moment when the mountains opened and a new light roars and spate through the crack and the mountains slam shut. Then there is this experience that the poet Reina Maria Rilke records in his diary. It's been said in some Zen circles that um, this may have been a kensho, an enlightening experience for Rilke. But what we can say is that um, it did lead to his greatest work, the Dueno Elegies, which is a cycle of poems. That's some of the greatest poems of the 20th century. This is what he writes in his diary. Uh, It was written um, around about 1910. It might be a little more than a year ago that something strange happened to him in the castle garden which sloped down quite steeply to the sea. Walking up and down with a book, as was his custom, it occurred to him to lean against the forking of two branches at about the level of his shoulder in a shrub-like tree. And immediately He felt himself so pleasantly supported in this attitude and given such ample rest that he remained like this, without reading, completely absorbed into nature, in a state of almost unconscious contemplation. Gradually, his attention was awakened by a hitherto unknown sensation It was as if almost imperceptible vibrations were passing from the interior of the tree into him. He felt he had never been filled with more delicate vibrations. His body was being treated in some sort of... in some sort like a soul and made capable of receiving a degree of influence which could not really have been felt at all in the usual well-defined clarity of physical conditions. In addition to that, he could not, in the first moments, properly distinguish which sense it was by which he was receiving so delicate and pervading a communication. Furthermore, the condition it was producing within him was so perfect, so persistent, different from all others, but so little to be represented by the heightening of anything he ever experienced, that, for all its delicious quality, he could not think of calling it pleasure. All the same, endeavouring always to account for the least perceptible experiences he insistently asked himself what was happening and almost immediately found an expression which satisfied him as he said it aloud. He had passed over to the other side of nature. He had passed over to the other side of nature. Or we would say, he had some cleaning of his own true nature. Tree nature. We'll end uh, with a poem by a Tang dynasty master, Huanglong Nan. All trees wither and die in time, but the cypress in Zhao Zhou's courtyard flourishes forever. Not only does it defy the frost, keeping its integrity, it virtually sings with a clear voice to the light of the moon. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate. Endless blind passion, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain.